Let's start basically by saying that we live in a world that's broken. All right? News flash. I don't think that's news to any of us. We all know that. We all realize that something's not quite right in the world that we live in. It's broken. That's one of the things that we've been saying over throughout this whole series is that part of the reality of the world in which we live in is that we are in a world that is in conflict. We are in conflict with nature. All right? we, we cannot control nature. We realize how powerless we are when lightning strikes, when a tsunami hits. We have zero ability to control anything like that. We realize that we are at war or at conflict with regard to uh, humanity. We can't even get along with ourselves. We have difficulty learning how to work with each other. We've got interpersonal relationships. We have people that are covetous of one another, people that are bitter with one another, people that hate one another, and out of hatred, and out of covetousness, and out of evil desires come murder. So if you ever kind of scratch your head and wondering, why is there another murder? Why is there another uh, death? Or all these things that sort of happen, or wars, it's really because it is just more fuel, more reality of the sense that we are at conflict even with ourselves as humanity. We're at conflict with our own selves personally. We can't control ourselves. No matter how much money we have, no matter how much power we have, no, much, no matter how much primetime television we have. I was just in line yesterday, checking out something at the grocery store, and Oprah Winfrey, I don't even know what magazine it was, it's a picture of her, kind of overweight, you know, where she is right now, and it was a picture of her pointing at another sort of picture of her. She's, you can see her midsection. She's kind of all looking nice and trim. It was like the trim Oprah and the present day Oprah, which is little overweight Oprah. And, and on the cover of it says, how did I let this happen again? Alright? I just, I laughed at that. I just thought that's classic. It doesn't matter how much money you have, how much power you have, how much voice you have. We can't even control ourselves. And finally, we're at conflict with God. We are just simply at conflict with God. We don't like the fact of the thought of God ruling and reigning. And so what happens in the world in which we live, we live in a society and a culture that no matter how much money gets pumped into the system, no matter how many elected officials get into place or how many tyrants take their role, or how much technology there is, or how many advances there are in, in science and healthcare and societal uh, relationships, we still can't seem to get things level. We just can't. I mean, we just, we don't know how to do it. No matter how many years have gone by, no matter how many studies have been done, no matter how much education gets pumped back into society, we still can't control it. Something's broken. That's all I'm simply trying to say. It's all the Bible really declares. Is something is broken. And the reality is, is that there have been many attempts to try to solve the problem, to make things better. Alright? And some have helped. Some have helped. Some have come along and have changed things and made things a little bit better. But where there are things that there are improvements, there's also at the flip side, there's other areas that are just broken again. And they have a shelf life, where at some point they're gonna, they might be sustained for some period of time, and then they get broken again. And you're back at square one, over and over and over again, goes this broken cycle, giving evidence to the fact that everything in this world 
is not the way it should be. It's not in rhythm. It's not the way God created it. It's not the way God will intend for it to ultimately climax and find its fulfillment in. The point of the Bible, the message of the Bible, is that God is king. That God created all things. He is king of kings. Yet there is a season, we live in it currently right now, in which evil has reigns upon this world. The Bible speaks of Satan as being the prince of the power of the air. We've been beguiled by him. We've bought into his lies. We've thought that somehow ways of God are ways that take away life. And because of that, we've bought into the lie and we have bought into the rebellion. But the story of the Bible is pretty simple. It's the story of the king who will who has allowed the earth to be in its present state of brokenness, he comes into this present state of brokenness, and he sets the beginning stages of repair, redemption. Jesus comes into the world as a man. He pays the price of sin's rebellion as a man, as God, and he brings restoration and redemption. And there will come a day when this Jesus will come back and finally set up his rule and reign. He will destroy and get rid of all of the evil that's within this world, and He will reign as King of kings, as Lord of lords, as Prince of peace. That's the future. That's the concept of the kingdom of God. So in one sense, the kingdom is here, currently now, and we're a part of it. If Jesus is the Lord of your life, we're living in the pre-stages of this, we have benefits of this, we've got certain realities in which we engage in, but we don't see it in its fullness. That will be yet to come. So I've got a series of questions that I want to ask. We'll make our way through them. The first of which is this. In the Bible, who is the rightful king? I figure we start right there. If we're going to talk about a kingdom, we should find out who the king is first. Well, the way I kind of broke this down is really there's three ways in which I think the king is defined throughout the Bible. The Old Testament sort of paints this picture of what I'm going to call the pre-incarnate Christ, pre-incarnate Jesus. This is Jesus as the second member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We saw at the very beginning of this whole series, the Old Testament talks about this. Um, throughout the uh, Old Testament, uh, the Jews break it up into what's called the Tanakh. You have the teachings, the writings, and the prophets. And uh, there are several passages in the New Testament that describe Jesus in his pre-incarnate state. Example being uh, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. Um, and there's other passages that describe Jesus. I think Philippians chapter 2 talks about Jesus who is in the presence of God. Uh, I think Hebrews chapter 12, somewhere around there, talks about Jesus uh, who is in the glory of the Father. Left that. And that kind of comes in the second one, which is incarnate. Uh, I actually spelled it right. It doesn't really say incarnate. Actually, there's an I there. You just can't see it. Uh, it's there. In the New Testament, we see sort of the incarnate Christ. This means Jesus comes in the flesh. He was throughout all time with the Father, the Spirit, and yet Jesus steps into this world at an appointed period of time, around 2,000 years ago, becomes a man. He's a humble peasant, humble servant, born in a manger, in sort of a horrible little city, horrible circumstances. 
He doesn't come into this world as traditional kings typically would. He comes as a servant to serve. He ultimately lays his life down uh, at the hands of cruel men. He dies. He rises again from the dead the third day. He ascends into heaven several days later. He calls the church, now those who are his followers, to follow after him, to continue to carry out the ministry that he had while he lived on the planet for 33 years. So the New Testament describes the incarnate aspect of Jesus, and then there are snapshots throughout other portions of the New Testament, as well as the Old Testament, that describe the final and perhaps the most important portrait of Jesus, which we ought to have in our mind, which I'm going to call just simply the glorified portrait of Jesus. Unfortunately, I love Christmas, but unfortunately, one of the problems that we do with Christmas, I'm guilty, just like the next person, is that we tend to spend all this time all this energy remembering and commemorating a baby Jesus. Alright? We look at a baby Jesus. Kind of like Ricky Bobby. Alright? Jesus is not a baby. He was a baby for a very short period of time. He's not a baby anymore. We don't pray to the humble baby Jesus. We pray to a risen, resurrected, all-powerful all-magnified, all-glorified God who is in glory. That's the Jesus that is today. Love Christmas. Hate to spoil Christmas plans. If you have little mangers with Jesus in there, that's great. Do it as a memorial to remember the glorified God stepping into a very undignified body to be glorified again. So just make sure you do Christmas theologically correct. You'll have a good time. I can't guarantee family relationships, but I guarantee that if you just do it theologically correct, you'll have things right theologically. All right, anyways, next one is this. What is God's kingdom? So every king needs to have a kingdom. God has a kingdom, all right? God, who inhabits eternity, all right? God inhabits eternity. God's kingdom or domain is everything. God created the heavens and the earth. He takes the earth and He gives it to humanity, to Adam and Eve, and says, be a steward of this. Unfortunately, what happens is mankind is beguiled by the devil, by the serpent, by the dragon, and in being beguiled by the dragon, in many ways, hands over the rights the privileges, the glory, the beauty of using the earth as a tool to bring glory back to its creator, God. Now Satan has his hands on it, he's molested it, he's destroyed it, he's stripped it. And so what we see today in the earth are just mere ruins of what creation originally was. We just see ruins. So if you ever walk outside and you're like, this is an absolutely beautiful day. You're just looking at piles of stone stacked up upon itself. Imagine what it looked like before it was destroyed. Okay? So that's the reality. So what we're going to see right now, we're going to jump into the book of Revelation. We're going to see really what the story of the book of Revelation is about, how the king has entered back into the world he created as man, as God, to suffer, die, rise again, ascend back into heaven, with the purpose of redeeming and restoring all things, 
All right? Contrary to popular belief, there's a lot of end-time sensationalism that goes on, and unfortunately the book of Revelation, in my opinion, gets hijacked by a bunch of people that are very afraid, and they take the book of Revelation, and they say the book of Revelation is all about you know, demons walking on the planet, and antichrist, and plagues, and wickedness, and evil, of which that may be a part And yet they completely neglect the main theme that goes all through the whole book of Revelation, which is there's a king who has a throne and he's coming back to the earth to take back his rightful planet, to redeem it, to renew it, to restore it, and to restore and redeem those who have been bought and purchased by his blood so that he can give it back to them. Say, rule and reign with me. That's the story. Yes, there's tribulation. Yes, there's Antichrist. Yes, there's evil. Yes, there's weird stories that happen that we all have speculation and question about. But the main theme, the main purpose of the book of Revelation is even in its name. The word Revelation, sometimes people say the book of Revelations. All right? There's no book of Revelations. All right? That's redneck talk. It is the book of Revelation. There's one Revelation. And the revelation is Jesus. It is the unveiling of the glory of the king who's taking back his kingdom. That's the book of Revelation. You guys ready? We've got a lot of verses to cover. First one, Revelation chapter 4, verse 2. If you're looking where that's at, the last book of your Bibles, Revelation chapter 2. We're going to start reading right there. It says this, verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit. Uh, This is written by a guy by the name of John. He was one of Jesus' best friends. He was an apostle, leader of the church, pastor. He was thrown in prison, and now he's sitting in this prison on an an exile on an island called Patmos, and he's writing this story, which is a revelation God reveals to him, uh, and he writes all this stuff down. It's very consistent with all of the rest of the Bible. In fact, many of the passages in the book of Revelation actually come out of many Old Testament passages, and... Uh, to have a good understanding of the book of Revelations, it's important to understand the rest of the context of the Bible because it's really a composite story of the king, the rightful king, Jesus, coming back to his rightful domain, earth, taking it back out of the oppressors and evildoers to give back to his redeemed children. All right, here we go. It says this, At once I was in spirit, and behold, a throne. Notice how many times the word throne is going to appear. This is essential to what the whole book of Revelation is about. The, the king on the throne stood in heaven and seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper, uh, Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. Seated on those thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne and on each side of the throne there were uh, four living creatures full of eyes from behind. And the first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and four and full eye and full of eyes, are all around, all around within. Um, from day and night, they never cease to say, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty." 
and who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures, these angelic beings, would give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, that's Jesus, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who was seated on the throne, and they worship Him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, O Lord God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will, they existed and were created. So first of all, one of the things that we see that's important here about this is there's this angelic scene. Here's Jesus seated on the throne. Around the throne are all these magnificent colors. If you're into graphic designs or things that are colorful, all right. if you live outside of monochromatic world and you like color, you will love heaven. You will love heaven. If you're somebody that likes beautiful sounds or music or things that are sonically beautiful, you will love heaven. Heaven is filled with all of the most beautiful colors, the most beautiful sounds, the, the greatest of food. That's what the Bible teaches. Here's Jesus around the, or on the throne. There's these angelic beings that we've never seen before. Right? He describes them. They sound pretty crazy, but they're powerful. And every time these things fall down and worship God, then these 24 elders, there's a lot of discussion as to who the 24 elders are. I think probably in short, it's safe to say either they are Christians or they are representatives of the heavenly host of believers. People that love Jesus, people that come to know Christ, it's probably safe to say that. They're on thrones themselves. There's 24 sub-thrones around the main throne. And every time these angelic beings worship God and sing holy, 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 then these other thrones, which are um, seated or have seated in them these elders or these leaders, they fall down on their face. They take the crowns that are on their head, which is probably sort of emblematic of the favor of God, the good giftings of God, all of the great blessings that God gives us. Here's what these elders do. They fall on their hands and knees and they take the crown that God has given them and they say, thank you. Thank you for everything. You know that everything that we have in our life, everything, that we will one day come and just realize none of it even comes close in comparison to the beauty and the majesty and the greatness of the King seated on His throne. That's what these guys do. They cast their crowns before the throne basically in an action of saying, God, you are the treasure. Not my goods, not my gifts, not my talents, not my things. You are uppermost in all my affections. That's what the statement is. Take a look at verse, or chapter 5, verse 1. And then I saw at the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the seal and to break its, uh, or to open the scroll and to break its seals? What happens? He finds nobody. He begins to cry. About verse six, he says, "In between the throne and the four living creatures, he says, and among the elders, I saw a lamb, as though it had been slain, with seven horns, seven eyes, and seven spirits of God sent out from the earth." I think these are sort of a metaphorical or symbolic things that describe the power the majesty, the might, and the strength of Jesus. And John says, I saw this guy on the throne, and he was like a lamb that was slain. Something about Jesus for all eternity 
will cause every worshiper to realize in this life, for me, he paid a very grave price. And John says, I saw that Jesus, and he was like a lamb that was slaughtered. It says, and he was found worthy, in verse 7, and he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, again, the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, worthy are you to take the scrolls and to open its seals, for you were slain by your blood, and you ransomed people for God. That, guys, was the purpose of Jesus' for coming into this world, His ministry, was to ransom you. Was to save you. Don't think of Jesus as just being merely a teacher. As just being merely some sort of kind of Zen Buddhist type great guy who's got a lot of great nuggets of wisdom to speak. But rather, Jesus is the Savior who's come to save and to redeem, to purchase, to take back, to rescue. Zechariah says, as a firebrand from the fire, God snatched you that was like a piece of burning charcoal, already dying, so that I will rescue you from the fire. Redeemed, ransomed, that's the picture. Verse 11, And I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the many voices of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who has been slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. I want you to jump forward real quick to Revelation uh, chapter 7 beginning at about verse 9. It says this, And after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice. What did they say? Salvation belongs to God, who sits on the throne. You know what salvation means? It means a lot of things, but one of the things is it means that God alone is able to set things to right. At least that's what it refers to. God makes right that which is wrong. Salvation belongs to God. Where does He sit? Because He's king. He sits on His throne. He sits on His throne. It says in verse 10, in crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and the Lamb. And all the angels are standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures they fell on their faces before the throne. They worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. I want you to turn real quick forward to uh, Revelation chapter 15. Revelation 15, 2 through 4. And I saw what appeared to be the sea of glass mingled with fire. This is a, a sea, kind of like a, a holy sea. In front of a, a king's throne was this, typically this massive like throne room entrance, you know, where you kind of come and hang out. He says, I saw this massive sea. It was like glass, commingled with fire. He says, and also those who had conquered the beast and the image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. 
And they sing a new song, the song of Moses, the servant, the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of nations, who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So far the picture is this. What you have are people that have been redeemed, washed, cleansed, purchased, taken by Jesus. And here's the thing. They love their King. I don't know of any subjects that love their president or love their King. I don't know of any kings that would say, I love my subjects. I'll do anything for them, even if they don't pay taxes. Even if they don't provide an entourage. I just love them. What you have in heaven is a king who sits on a throne that is so highly, if I can just use the word, respected. I mean, he is respected to the point of reverence, love, worship. Because he's earned their respect, love, and worship. I mean, kings can't force people to love them. They can force taxes out of them. They can force them to do slave labor. They can force them to live in particular regions and subject themselves to particular police forces and military strength and might. But never can a king exercise authority over a heart. But King Jesus does. And He captures the heart of nations and of people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue because He's a good king. And they come before Him and they worship. You know what else they do? They sing. They sing. Now, honestly, I, I, I love you guys. I, Calvary Slow, you've got to hear me here a second, okay? we got to get better at singing. Alright? I mean, I love you guys, but the bottom line is, is I have a feeling that unless we improve, we're going to get to heaven, and everybody's going to know that we're like the Calvary Slow folk. Because we don't sing. Or we're the ones that like start clapping and then like halfway through the song we just stop. Or we're like all completely out of rhythm. Well, maybe in heaven we'll be a little bit better. But the bottom line is this. Heaven and this throne around the King, there'll be a lot of singing. A lot of expression of love and of worship and of gratitude because God's a good God. Okay, the last verse in this little section I want to read is Revelation chapter 19 beginning about verse 6. It says this, and then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. Okay, I want you to listen to the descriptions here. Okay? He talks about, I heard the voice of a sound of a great multitude. Very great. Not small, but a great multitude. It's like the roar of many waters. I had the privilege several years ago to Iguazu Falls. All right? Unbelievable. World's largest waterfall. Unbelievable to just sit there and to just get wet by the dew, and to just listen to the sound, the powerful roar of many waters. He says, I heard the sound like of a great multitude, the roar of many waters. He said, the sound of mighty pearls of thunder, all crying out. Imagine the myriads of myriads and multitudes and multitudes of people of every tribe, nation, tongue, language, ethnic group, all the way around the world, joining their voice in unison to proclaim, Hallelujah! For the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory. 
For the marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready and it is granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel of the Lord, or the angel stood, said to me, Write these things. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. What I want you to see here is this absolutely unbelievable picture of the King of all kings who rules over all things, who creates all things with the word of his mouth, maybe a snap of his fingers. He just has authority and power over all things. Amazingly, he steps off of his throne and approaches this gathering of people redeemed. People who were seduced by sin. People that were evil. People that were evildoers. People that were murderers in heart. People that hated people. People that lived in this life and we couldn't control ourselves. We couldn't control relationships. We were broken. We were wounded. We were defiled. We were defilers. He sits down and He has a meal with us. But before He does that, He puts white clothing on us to say, this is how I see you. Pure. If we can hear this today and realize that this is our great King who rules upon a throne, if you can't fall in love with this Jesus, it's just hardness of heart. That is a great God that is so great, so willing to leave, to step down, to walk away from this throne of authority and power and say, I will have a, a meal with you. I love you. And I will clothe you in garments that remind me of who you are, clean and undefiled. That's the God that we have. That's the domain that He rules over. That's the kingdom that He calls us to be a part of. Take a look at the next question that I want to ask is this. How does God deal with those who are rebellious? Because just like in the world in which we live in today, when there is an authority figure or a leader that tries to establish his reign or leadership, there's always dissenters. There are always going to be people that fight against or resist against his leadership and his authority. Some for good reasons. Some for no good reasons. But here's what happens. God, in the same way, is resisted. Right? God is resisted. Some of you here today might resist God. You might fight against Him. You might not want His rulership or His leadership in your life for whatever reason. Maybe it's fear. Maybe you're afraid. Maybe you have a bad picture in your mind about who God is. Whatever the case is, there is resistance. Right? The world is full of people who resist God. So the question is, is what will God do with those who resist? What will God do with other religious leaders, other religions, other religions that claim to be the way, but deny Jesus as Savior, other leaders of the world, other despots, other lords, other wealthy people, other movers, shakers, tyrants, oppressors, from the least to the greatest. How does Jesus deal with these people? It's important to understand, because part of this whole large concept of God's kingdom is the fact that God will judge dissenters. God will judge the rebellion. All right? You have to see this. Because as I said already, unfortunately we have this idea already established in our mind that if your picture of Jesus is that of humble peasant, 
homeless slave who wore a dress, who lived for 33 years, who took a beating, then it's incomplete. Jesus took a beating for 33 years and that was finished. Never again will King Jesus take a beating. Never again will Jesus be abused. Never again will Jesus subject himself to the hands of wicked and evil men. Those days are done. This is different Jesus. Different place. Different role. This is Jesus who is conquering Jesus, who will come back. This is the Jesus who now is on that throne. He's coming back. And here's what it talks about. So I want you to read, if you would, Revelation chapter 19, begin about verse 11. Here's what it says. And then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he's clothed in a robe that's dipped in blood. And the name on which he is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arraigned in fine linen, white and pure. They were following him on, which, on white horses as well. From his mouth came a sharp sword in which, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of fury and of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh are the name, or is the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the picture of Jesus now. He is in heaven. When he comes back, what happens is he will be on a white horse. He will be wearing white clothing. Alright, here's the deal. If you show up to a fight wearing all white and your ride happens to be white, you're pretty certain as to how this battle is going to turn out. Alright, you're pretty confident you're not going home loser. Jesus shows up wearing all white. All of his entourage is all wearing white. They've got white horses that they're riding on. The only bit of blood is on Jesus' hem of his garment. His robe is dipped in blood. There's Jesus, eyes of flame of fire. Out of his mouth proceeds the sword of God. He is a conquering king. When Jesus first came to the people there in Jerusalem, how did Jesus come? On a donkey. Not again. Never again. The next time this Jesus comes, it won't be on a donkey. It won't be humble peasant. It won't be one who is offering his life to lay it down to die. When Jesus comes again, he will come as conqueror, as king of kings, as lord of lords. And those who stand opposed or as oppressive or as anti will be destroyed. Jesus' way of bringing peace is not through negotiation in the days to come. It's through crushing. That's Jesus' peace plan. Kill the oppressor. But for now, this hasn't happened yet. Jesus' way of bringing peace is still humble. He calls us. He woos us. He uses the church to preach this. This is not a plea that the church has to be militant. People have taken uh, approaches to the Bible that are false. People have assumed that the church needs to now go out and be militant. This is what has happened through the Crusades and other periods throughout Christendom that have just ended horribly. Our job 
as the church today is to act exactly the way Jesus did in His first coming. Humble. Servants. When someone slaps us on the one cheek, we turn and give them the next. When someone asks us for our shirt, we say, you need a jacket too. When someone says, hey, can you help me out, carry this for a mile? We say, hey, how about if I carry it too? That's how we serve the world today. One day, Jesus will come back at some point in the future, and He will take back the earth and all that He created as His own, and He will rule and reign. So here's what happens. It goes on to say, I'll pick it up around verse 21, and the rest were slain by the sword, and they came by the fire of his mouth, and on him was sitting the horse, and all of the birds gorged upon their flesh, and the angel comes and summons all of the predatorial birds of the air, says, come, you guys are going to eat a big meal. Um, in the one hand, Jesus prepares this unbelievable meal for his children. On the other hand, Jesus calls all the birds and prepares a meal for them. And they will feast upon all of the kings of the earth, all of the oppressors, all of the despots, all of those that have abused and destroyed and raped and pillaged and ruined God's good creation and have completely uh, belittled the glory of God. Okay, what happens now in about verse 7 of chapter 20, it says, and then a thousand years are ended. What happens is there's a period called the millennial period, for a thousand years, uh, Jesus and his people reign upon the earth. Satan's locked up for a thousand years. After this thousand year period, Satan is um, unlocked. It says in verse 7, it says, And when the thousand years were ended, Satan was released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather against his big battle against God. So here's my question Satan's locked up for a thousand years. Does he change? Does he repent? Does he see the error of his ways? Does Satan realize I made a big mistake? Not at all. Satan is a liar. He is a deceiver. And as soon as he has another opportunity, he comes out and he uses that as a means to once again attack God and attack those whom he loves, his children. So what happens, I love this, because what takes place at about verse 9, it says, and they marched over the broad plain of the earth and they surrounded the camp of the saints. So Satan and this whole entourage of his enemies gather around the saints, the people that love Jesus. And he says, and the devil uh, who had deceived them was thrown. Or actually, I'm sorry, what happens, it says at the end, they gather on the saint of the beloved city, probably Jerusalem. But fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. I love this. God doesn't even lift up a sword. He just sends fire down and they're all gone. I mean, God's way of dealing with them is like, wipes them out. They're over. It's not a battle. Sometimes people mistakenly think that heaven belongs to God. Hell is ruled by Satan. Not so. Not so. God, believe it or not, is even God over hell. His dominion has no end at all. And what happens is God is king over all things and so he comes to Satan, even though Satan never changes, never uh, repents, or modifies his behavior, and he consumes him. In verse 10, And the devil who had deceived them were thrown into the lake of fire, and sulfur were the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. Hell, the Bible teaches, or this eternal state is, both, is all conscious, 
meaning you are aware of what's happening. It's eternal and it's torment. Conscious, eternal torment. That's what the Bible describes it as. Jesus, on His earthly ministry, spoke about how often. He made, a, or made an illustration. He spoke of it as being like Gehenna. Okay? There was an area just outside of the wall in Jerusalem called the Valley of Hinnom. Back in the period of time before kings had kind of been around Israel, this area called the Valley of Hinnom was completely devoted over to uh, paganism. People would worship these false gods, Baal and some of the other gods of the Seraphonician people. And what they would do is they would offer sacrifices to these false gods. Many of the people that they would offer would be their own children. They would offer old people who were too old to kind of move on throughout society. Also people that were sort of handicapped, they were kind of drags on culture, societies they were viewed. They were taken out in this valley of Hinnom and they were slaughtered and killed methodically as a means of worship to these false gods. After the kings came into power, like David and some of the other kings, they began to recognize that this area of the valley of Hinnom was evil. Nobody wanted to buy a nice little townhouse right there overlooking the valley of Hinnom. That was satanic territory. Right? You just don't want to live there. And so what happened is that area became sort of the refuse dump. All of the sewage of the city would go out and funnel into the region of the Valley of Hinnom. It was a place where people would take their, their uh, trash, uh, people that were maybe uh, people of the land, non-Jews, because Jews would bury their people, but non-Jews that were living in the area, they would dump dead bodies there. It was a horrible place. And one of the things that they would do on regular occasions, they would have these regular ongoing bonfires that would burn the refuse, burn the trash, burn the garbage, burn the waste. And constantly there was always this smoldering cloud of smoke that was always going up at all times, any period throughout the day. You would look out there at night and you would see these little flaming embers. It would smell. The stench was horrible. Nobody wanted to go there. There was literally maggots or worms that were always feasting upon bodies or animals. And Jesus says, you want to know what hell's like? It's like Gehenna. It's like Gehenna. Except everlasting. Forever. That's what hell is like. That's what the place will be like for those who rebel against the king, who is a good king. He goes on, and he finishes up this little section here. Verse 11, I saw a throne, and him who was seated on it in the presence of the earth and the sky fled away, and there was no place found. And I saw the dead, both small and great, standing before the throne, and the books were open. And then another book was open, and the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what had been done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death, Hades, gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what had been done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and the second death, the lake of fire, and this is the second death in the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into this lake of fire. I fear that some here may not even be a part of this book. And what troubles me most is some might not even just even care. This is real stuff. This is the Jesus that you will face one day. You will have to give an account to. Not humble baby Jesus in a manger, not weak Jesus who can't even carry a cross, 
who cries out, my God, my God, help me. The Jesus you will face is the Jesus who has flame eyes of fire, who rides on the white horse, who is very confident as to how his kingdom establishing project will go. Okay? It's a serious stuff. The question I think oftentimes arises is why does there have to be judgment? Right? Right? We, we live in tolerant culture, right? Can't we just all get along? Can't we just learn how to figure to work things out? That's the culture we live in. We hear it every time. Turn on television, turn on the news, turn on the radio, go to a movie. It's tolerance. Can't we all just kind of make something happen where we all work together? We synchronize, we just make it all together. Can't we just coexist with each other? Why does there have to be a judgment? I want to try to answer some of these and some of the misconceptions about this. So the next question is, what are some of the misconceptions about judgment and kingdom? The first one is annihilationism. It's this idea that one day all things will just cease to exist. It'll just all be annihilated. It'll just be gone. Both heaven, hell, um, if there is such a place, it'll just be gone. Um, Once we die, we die. It's the idea, annihilationism. Uh, Universalism basically teaches that um, we will all be saved. All of us will just kind of go to heaven. All of us. And usually the argument is, if God is a loving God, why, why wouldn't He just let us all go in? Okay, let, me, let me just try to... I can't answer every objection, but here's the reality. If universalism is true, if everyone just simply goes to the same place, I want to ask you, seriously ask you, if you lived in a house... We, we don't even operate like this in our world. All right? Some dude comes knocking on the door. You're a female. All right? You're a female. You're 19 years old. You're away from home for the first time. The dude comes knocking on the door says, Hi, I'm a, I'm a predator. I'm a sex addict. I always look at porn. I want to rent out the room in front. What would you do? Right? You would discriminate. You'd say, no. We'll find somebody else. The reality is, it doesn't make sense, this concept of universalism. Maybe in theory, maybe in a world that doesn't exist. If it does exist, there's like unicorns. Alright? But the reality is, is it doesn't exist. We don't live in that world. We realize there are areas where we have to discriminate. We have to protect. A place where everybody just gets to partake is not going to be heaven. Because what if you hate Jesus and you're there? Is that heaven? That's hell. So what does God do? He says, if you don't love me, then you will not have to be with me. You will be separated from me. You will be cast into like a fire. Okay? Uh, third one is reincarnation. This is very popular today. It's the idea that we all just sort of have a shot in this life, do the best that we can. If we fail, we mess up. It's okay. We've got another life. Come back. Deal with it again. This goes on forever. Until something changes, we do a little bit better. This is a scene in TV shows. I think it's called What About Earl? Is that correct? You've seen that? No? Um, the idea is this guy's on a quest to basically, uh, basically kickstart his karma back up again. Uh, had a bad life, mistreated a lot of people. The object of the show is to try to help him to get his karma back up. So he helps people. So that once he hits reincarnation state, he can come back a little bit better. Um, a third misconception is purgatory. Uh, predominantly a Catholic doctrine, it's the notion or the idea that when we die, uh, one day we will go to a place, not heaven, but we will go to a place where our souls will be purged, hence the name purgatory. It's the idea that 
um, if you fail in this life, you do some bad things, let's say you die uh, because you committed suicide. That's bad. You shouldn't commit suicide, so you've got to pay for your sin. You didn't get a chance to say, I'm sorry. Uh, it just didn't quite work out. So, but that's okay, because there's a place for you to go called purgatory where you can pay for that sin. Um, what this does is it belittles the cross. It really just belittles the finished, final work of Jesus on the cross, paying for our sin. Uh, another misconception is soul sleep. Seventh-day Adventist um, believers, the believers, they just believe some things like this. One of, the, one of their doctrines is soul sleep, meaning that when you die, um, you don't go to be with God, you, you take a very long nap. Paul says uh, to be absent from the body is not to take a nap, uh, but to be present with the Lord. So soul sleep is another misconception. Um, here, here's another one. It's the idea that um, God's not loving or God's not fair or caring. So therefore, why would He judge? Why would this happen? Again, this too is also a misconception. Let me try to put it to you another way. If there were somebody, I've got two daughters, ages 10 and 12, and a beautiful wife, married 17 years, and the reality is if somebody came into my life, was stalking me or my family, and they says, I want to rape your wife and I want to molest your kids, my role, my obligation is to call the cops to do whatever I can to protect myself from that. All right? If the guy gets thrown in jail, he's in prison for five years, comes out, and he comes right after coming out of prison, shows up on my front doorstep and says, Hi, I'm back, and I'm going to do the same thing I did, I told you I want to do five years ago. Okay? God says, I will do everything to guard my loved ones. I will do everything I can to safeguard those whom I love. Those who reject me, those who resist me, those who don't like me, those who don't love me, those who don't like my children, they'll be cast out. They'll be dealt with. They will be crushed. That's Jesus' peace plan. As He deals with His enemies by crushing them. You say that it doesn't sound too pacifistic. I know. That's not how Jesus works. The last one is this. is caricature. What I mean by this is this picture that we have in our mind of God, heaven, hell being like a cartoon. And when we die, heaven will be like a very, very chubby baby with a very small wingspan sitting on a cloud playing a very small harp made out of gold with a bunch of other very chubby people. <laughs> and we laugh at it because it's funny. And the reality is, if that's heaven, then the other option might seem a little bit more appealing. Okay? See, the enemy, what he does is he likes to create cartoon pictures in our mind so that when we think about heaven, we completely think about something that is not really heaven. So this is why people joke about it. It becomes... You know, subject matter of late night television jokes like heaven, why, who wants to go there? That's the place where all the fundamentalist freaks who read only King James Version raise Rottweilers and want to just eat a lot of corn because they want to escape life and existence in the city. That's where all the heaven people are going to go. And we have this picture in our mind. If that's what heaven is, might be better off with the alternatives. And the reality is these are just caricatures. This is not the real heaven. The real heaven that Jesus calls us to is glorious. 
beautiful. It's about a king who's very kind, very just, very loving, who will set to right all that which is wrong. I want to finish by reading a couple passages, or several passages, out of uh, the last question that I want to ask, which is really, what will the kingdom be like? What will the kingdom be like? I want you to read out of uh, Revelation chapter 21. I'm going to read verse 1. Just read through it. I want you to listen to it. I want you to hear the description of what this kingdom in its finality will look like and be like so that we can hopefully have a proper understanding of what God has in store for those who love the king, who honor the king, who trust the king. Okay? Listen to what he says, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Remember as a young believer reading, the sea was no more, thinking there's no surfing in heaven. That's horrible. Is that possible? Uh, the sea, actually this is an unbelievably beautiful metaphorical statement. The concept of the sea is where all evil comes from. Where does the beast in the book of Revelation rise out of? The sea. When Jesus is in His earthly ministry, and He says, let's cross over the sea, over to the other side, and then all of a sudden the storm kicks up, all of these fishermen that have grown up their entire life on the sea, they begin to assume we're going to die. The sea and all of the evil and the abyss which it possesses will destroy us. Jesus with one word says, the sea will no longer harm you. And here in the book of Revelation, the promise of God Himself says the sea will be no more. There will be no more origination of evil. It will be finished. It will be over. It will be conquered. Verse 2, he says, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, which God had prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Notice how many times the word new is used. New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, new creation. Guys, isn't this exactly what something inside of our heart says we want? Right? We're like, I want a new marriage. I want a new relationship. Or I want something new. And really, all of this is because somewhere inside of our hearts, we realize what we have has grown old and stained and broken and destroyed. And in the end, Jesus says, I'll make all of it new. And it will be sustained forever. And I will give you the ability to enjoy it with sustained enjoyment forever. Think about that. And then he says in verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death will be no more. Neither shall there be any more mourning, or crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Again, the King steps off this throne and goes to His subjects whom He loves, who have been through great tribulation, great difficulty, great hardship in this life. And He Himself, with His own hand, wipes the tears from His beloved subjects' eyes. Verse 5, it says, And he who was seated upon the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And all who are thirsty, I will give them the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers, 
He will have this heritage, and I will be His God, and He will be my Son. And as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Verse 22, says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, and the city has no need for the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God will be its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory to Him. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does, not, who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Verse 1 of 22, And then the angel showed me the river, the water of life, bright as crystal, flaming from the throne of God. Listen to the imagery of this. And the Lamb, and the lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side, there was a river and the tree of life. In this series, we literally are brought back to the very beginning of this series. In the beginning, God creates man, says, this is the earth I want to give to you. It's mine. I give it to you. There's a garden. God says, it's yours. Be fruitful, multiply, enjoy it. It's my gift of love and kindness to you. In the middle of that garden was a tree of life. Man made a choice, surrendered the garden, the earth, all of God's good creation to the enemy who had deceived them. And from that point forward, the dragon has consistently raped, deceived, seduced, sexually molested the nations. And we have been its victims and its perpetrators. And in the end, the king will redeem it all and say, I want to give you back the tree which you were barred from. And in the very center, it says, here's the tree of life. And it says, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree were healing for the, for the healing of the nations, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God. And the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. And it will see His face. You guys listen to this, okay? This something that we just don't even understand now, but there will come a day when God will unveil His glory and in His majesty and His might and His power, this King of kings, this Lord of lords who rules all nations, all things, will step down from His throne and we will see Him face to face. That's our God. That's our God. It says, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. There will need no light, nor lamp, nor sun, for the Lord their God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. In verse 12, Behold, he says, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone what he has done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life. Guys, Don't miss the tree of life. Don't miss the life that God offers freely. Jesus in His earthly ministry tells a story. He says, 
there's a story of a man, a good man, a powerful man, a master, and he summons all the people to come to eat, to partake of the food. And he gives the invitation. And as he goes through the town giving the invitation, there are those that say, you know, I can't come. I just bought a piece of property. I've got to go check it out. Another group says, I can't. I just got married. I've got to go on my honeymoon. There's another that says, listen, I just bought a yoke of oxen for my field. I haven't even inspected them. I've got to go check them out. And what happens is by the end of that parable that Jesus says, He says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. There is a call. There is a summon. There is a, there's this, this massive, outstanding forth of summon to say, come to the marriage. Come to the feast. Come and dine with the King who is good. And what happens is we find ourselves confronted with things. It's, and here's the most astounding reality of this parable of Jesus. If Jesus can put it in this words, He would say this, you know what keeps you out of heaven? It's not the things that we oftentimes think. We oftentimes think it's like, you know, being really, really evil, doing a lot of drugs, having sex with lots of partners, being filthy, being somebody that's a child molester. Those are the worst of the worst of things that will keep you out of heaven. Well, apparently to Jesus, the things that keep us out of heaven is real estate. It's family. It's cars. It's gadgets. It's our computers. It's the things that we value in this life more than the King Himself. They render us deaf to His call. There's nothing wrong with any of these things. They're all gifts from God. They're all good. And they will damn your soul to hell if you love them more than a king. That ought to make us tremble. How serious this salvation is that God says, don't neglect this call. It's about a king and a kingdom who says, come. It's a great kingdom. I hope you're in it. I hope you love the king. We're going to finish now. And really, the reality about all this is that this is full of rejoicing. All right? it might be, it's serious, but it's also powerfully and profoundly full of rejoicing. Because the King's here. He calls us today. All right? Calvary Slow, we have an opportunity now to respond, to sing to our God, I know it's a little late. If you need to leave, tension release, bye. Alright? If you want to stay, hang out. We're going to worship, okay? But what I want to encourage us to consider as we worship, really this is like, this is all like preparation time for heaven. Alright? I hope we get better at this. Because one day, we're going to stand before the King. We're going to cast our crowns before the King of Kings. We're going to worship. We're going to sing loudly. Alright? So I'd encourage you guys to sing loudly. If you have any Pentecostal in you, let it come out. That's okay. We still love you. But the reality is, is we have a great salvation from a great king with an amazing kingdom.